Hello, everyone. Just a quick heads up before we start the episode. The sound quality is not the best. We had some technical difficulties. Uh, both the episode lacks in audio quality, it makes up for, and then some in the content of the discussion. This is not a race against the machines. This is a race with the machines. everyone. Welcome to another episode of the B21 podcast. And today's topic is what is the soul? And so to talk about this really cool topic, um, I have a few guests. Um, so first of all, Vidya, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Vidya. I study computer science. So I know nothing about the soul except for the conclusions I have from late night thought journeys. But I'm excited to hear what everyone has to, th- what everyone has to say today. Um, and uh, Katrina? Hi, I'm Katrina. I'm a sensory archaeologist. I work in the anthropology department. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate. And uh, I don't know anything about the soul either, but I will try my best today. <laughs> and finally, John? Hi, I'm John McMaster. I uh, teach voice here in the Schulich School of Music. I'm an operatic tenor. And in a previous lifetime, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to really this lifetime, so it's not an their soul existence. Uh, my first degree was in theology and philosophy, and I did a lot of church music for a long time. And so I've had an opportunity both as an artist and as a theologian to think about soul. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Um, and I'm Viola. I'm one of the program assistants uh, at B21. Um, so then let's start. Uh, my first question, if anyone and anyone can answer, uh, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of the word soul? I have a question I always ask myself. Why do we need it? Why do we, what's the human attachment to the soul that makes us talk so long about it? Do you mean the soul itself or the concept of a soul? Both, I guess. Because, well, I, sh- I guess I should preface by saying that three weeks ago, my brother and I came to the conclusion that we both believe that there is no soul. Yeah, recently my question has been, what's the use of the soul? And have you come up with any kind of answer? Nope. (laughs) I guess my views are a little bit um, based on how I was raised as a child. I was in the Catholic religion, so we always viewed the the soul as something that was sacred and divine and given as a gift and uh, (coughs) unique to each person, but in a way interconnected and um, something that's kind of like an essence of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And just like based on on the how you were taught when you were little, um, was there any idea of like the soul being mutable and being able to be changed as you grew, or was it kind of an idea that you're you're born with a soul and the soul stays <coughs> not static but stays more or less the same throughout your life? No, I well, I don't know exactly how, what I was taught about the soul. But my own personal beliefs is that the soul uh, develops over time and changes, but at the same has like a, a core uh, essence to it that I think is important. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, d- I do think it's interchangeable and, and kind of develops as you develop as a person, but it's separate from personality for sure. So I th- I'm glad to hear both of your thoughts. Um, to respond to you, why do we even talk about this, or maybe we don't have one, um, I, th- I think part of our fascination over the centuries um, is as we become aware of ourselves and an inner life, we want to name what that is that's different in someone who's alive and someone who's dead, or just very recently dead, where somehow or other we have the feeling that the soul has disappeared or there's no longer life there, whatever that life is, <clears throat> and their organs may almost still be functioning, you know? but the life is gone. And so come up with words like mind and heart and soul and psyche or pneuma, back to the Greeks, I think in a, in a struggle, in an effort to recognize our interior lives and to wonder about, well, where is that? Is that here? Or, you know, pointing to my head or to my heart. Um, is it something else? And if it's different from the brain and the thinking, is it the repository of love or uh, artistic appreciation, aesthetic appreciation? Is it the, is it the thing that makes me respond to Mozart in a particular way, let's say? Is it the thing that allows me to fall in love? Is it the thing, is it the place where spirituality lives? Not just necessarily religion, but big old spirituality? So I think those are the kind of the questions, and I was formed as as you were as a Catholic, and so I carry that kind of deposit of faith, that kind of idea about that, but I feel like I've grown, maybe I was going to say grown out of that, maybe that's not the right way to put it. I would say that my consciousness is wider and and really open to what lots of different folks are going to bring to that idea of does the soul pre-exist and become you know embodied in in the fetus or something uh does it live after us is there an afterlife those are things that i don't have any answers to i don't i don't since i don't know and can't know i'm open to the possibility that maybe yes maybe no but in the meantime i am really aware of an interior life that I call soul. But if, if one of our neuroscientist friends, so actually John, it's this and that and the other, oh, oh good, now I know more about it. But yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, my, I was not raised religious at all, and I've often struggled with the word soul in and of itself just because I've always heard it in a religious context. Mm-hmm. But I do think, regardless of what you call it, whether it's soul, whether, but there is some kind of essence to everyone, I think. And this can change throughout our lives. I think generally there's some kind of core, again, as, as you said, Katrina, some kind of core that sticks with us. You know, some people are more, lean more towards one thing, one passion. Some people lean more towards other. Some people are more energetic, more thoughtful, whatever. And this kind of continues, but with a lot of elasticity and a lot of um, plasticity, I guess, ability to change. Um, so I guess maybe a, uh, another question that Vidya brought up that would be interesting is why talk about it in the first place? Why are we interested in this idea? If if this is the case, why would we rather believe in something like a soul or an essence rather than not? I think my answer has nothing to do with my conversation with my brother or what I realized with him, but I never, I was never really taught what the soul is. 
And with that, I really resonate with John's definition of what soul is, which is that soul is used as a label word, I suppose, for many different things. And it resonates with me because soul is something I learned by talking with my friends or listening to podcasts and watching movies where people talk about soul. And what I observe is that soul is always related to the individual. And we live in a world where at least all of us are in a university setting, for example, and we have things like scores and tests and academics that measure us on a scale. But being able to talk about the soul puts us in a different level, I guess. That's not a linear 0 to 100, 1 to 7, A, B, C, D grades that allows us to explore us as individuals, how we compare to one another. I don't know if that really makes sense, but I think it's an alternative to things that are set in stone by society. So in, in a university setting, I can see how that would be very much the case. But like for people who aren't necessarily in a university setting, I think for much of human existence, um, and Katrina, maybe you know more about this than I do, but uh, there's been some kind of belief in a soul, like from the earliest religions and everything. Right. Um, and so presumably we didn't always have this kind of set of like, you know, one to a quote unquote objective measurements of your worth and your abilities like we do now. Yeah. Um, and yet people have still seemed to have been fascinated by this concept. Um, so that might be part of it, but I think that maybe there's another component of it just because it's such a recent phenomenon, this this ranking of people. Yeah, I didn't think about it that far back in history. <laughs> I think in like the historical sense, um, uh, the the soul has been represented in like ancient Egypt, for example, when there's um, the pharaoh needed to in New Kingdom Egypt, the pharaoh needed to renew his uh, ka force, which was like believed to have been part of his soul. And it was something essential for civilization to maintain order. So as the pharaoh uh, travels down, um, I think he travels to Thebes, um, he's renewing through the process of ritual and procession his uh, ka force, and the whole of uh, society is involved in this process. And then for the ancient Maya, they have this concept of, of why, um, which is kind of like a soul force as well. And um, they're able to... I don't know if it exists through all members of society because all we have left over is stila, which represents the upper class and rulers of the time. And they were using the ka to kind of give themselves a form of supernatural power. So they were able to transform into animals, uh, like a, a spiritual animal. And that was kind of tied into their soul. And it was usually animals that were seen as predators. So jaguars and, you know, the, the feathered serpent. Like there was images of the serpent, for example. Um, but I'm not sure... Uh, to what extent this would have been something that was everyday, and I don't know how it evolved into our conception of the soul today. And uh, like like you mentioned, this I've heard this a lot in terms of rulers and, and <coughs> like the elite class. Um, do we know anything about how common people would have perceived souls? Whether there was any concept that the soul was a general thing that everyone had or whether it was specifically because you're the ruler and therefore protector of the country or whatever it might be that your soul was that only those people had a soul because they were the kind of in charge of the area so um in in ancient egypt times there there was a lot of uh like the the idea was to preserve the body so then the soul could transfer successfully to the afterlife 
And then they had a whole series of rituals, um, like the Book of the Dead and rites and passages for them to have to go through in order to achieve the afterlife. But I'm not necessarily sure if, they're, if, if it would be the same as our conception of soul, like going to the afterlife, or if it would be the spirit of the person, or I'm not sure in that, in that sense. Um, but they eventually got to this part where they had to weigh their heart against the, the feather of truth, and if their heart was good, if they lived a good life, then they would be able to progress into the afterlife. But again, I think that was probably something reserved for elites. And in other cultures, I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I'm intrigued that you were um, describing a difference between spirit and soul. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what, what you know from your study. How, what did they mean by distinguishing, or what do you mean by distinguishing between spirit and soul? Um, that's a very good question. I guess because of my background and my experience, I think of the spirit in terms of um, like a life force, whereas the soul might be an essence of something else. But I'm not 100%. I don't have my thoughts clear on this yet. Yeah. But it's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm very happy living uh, in the in-between, you know. <clears throat> and so for me, um, I don't need to distinguish between the one and the other. Oh, okay. You know, so... And it might be helpful to do so. Yeah. It's just not the, the kind, that's not, uh, that's not where my mind lives. Mm -hmm. And I uh, and I'm, admire people who, um, who can be made perhaps more precise in their thought. But I relish the fact that I'm happy thinking about spirit and essence and soul and um, what makes you you. Uh, what's the essence of you? Uh, I'm happy about calling that soul or essence or my, she has a lovely spirit <laughs> or, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, on that note, I was thinking of, like, um, perhaps the soul is something a little bit more private. At least if mm. we were to distinguish between the two, soul and spirit, perhaps the soul is something a little bit more hidden and private because mm. you can have the spirit of the warrior but still feel like a coward on the inside, and I don't know if that would be something that has to do with the soul, but um, you could be seen by others as having a spirit of some sort, like a spirit of an artist, spirit of a warrior, but I don't think you can attribute that to a soul, could you? Well, I, I wouldn't have any trouble doing so, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have any trouble in sharing with somebody, you know, Viola, the way you strike me, oh. and, and, and speaking to what a gift either of you are, let's say, you know, as I know you. And, uh, and I might be speaking something to you that you're aware of, mm -hmm. or I might be speaking to some part of your essence or your giftedness that you're not aware of. And, or, or I might be sharing it to let you know that I appreciate that giftedness in you, uh, that beyond your other accomplishments or what people, you know, know. Yeah, you know, but you're, you're a great friend, you know, you're a great listener, you know. Well, you're also running the Royal Bank or whatever it is you, you, know, you do when you're the mother of 12 or, you know, just whatever, right? But that part of your essence or spirit or the part of you that's interior but cultivated um, because of who you are or who you're becoming or because it's important to you or it's the gift that you bring the universe or whatever, I'm happy to call that kind of anything at all. You know, but I really want to acknowledge it, and I want to think of it as different from how smart you are because your IQ is 287 or something, you know, or, or just whatever, or or your synapses work this way, or your you know, or 
Yeah, uh, I'm inclined to agree with you, uh, Katrina. I think the, the first thing that came to mind with spirit was that you can say of someone that they're a very spirited person or that they have a lot of spirit. And generally this means something along the lines of they're very energetic or they're very passionate or they're willing to put themselves out there to, to some extent. Um, which is interesting because I also think that, you know, you can have a very gentle spirit or something like that, which not necessarily, but could contradict the, the first one. So it's interesting just to see, even with the word spirit, the different things that that can, that, that can refer to. But I also agree with you, John, that I think whether we call it spirit or soul, whether they're the same thing or whether they're slightly different things, there is a difference between that category of being and things like intelligence, ambition. Well, ambition maybe is a little bit more nebulous, but kind of, let's say, more like societal understandings of a person or societal expectations of a person um, that kind of, I feel like there's two categories. There's the, maybe the things, the specific things that you do, the specific things that you are in terms of how you think or how you work or things like that. And, and, and those kind of affect the people around you, but not necessarily close to you in a certain way. Like, you know, you can be a brilliant student and that's going to affect your teacher in a particular way. Um, whereas being, I don't know, being particularly kind or particularly whatever that might belong more to the sphere of the soul will tend to affect more the people who are closer to you because it's not as immediately obvious. So just to maybe turn this a little bit and coming out of what you were talking about there, Viola, I wonder about... You know, we talk about soul music, you know, R&B, soul. Um, and, and I think about, um, because music is so much a part of my life, uh, whether it's, you know, being moved by a Joni Mitchell tune or Bob Dylan or I'm dating myself, but, uh, or, or certainly a, a Beethoven or a Mozart or a Bach, um, they're very, very competent composers. They're wonderful composers. And then there are composers who take the art and skill of composition to another level where somehow or other I feel that their music embodies soul. And um, so we say of soul music or you know, something that's so soulful, whatever that might mean. But when I'm in the concert hall and I'm hearing a wonderful performance of something or other that's in which the performers are totally invested in making something written often a long time ago come to life. And I am moved to my core. I'm becoming emotional just thinking about moments like that that I've had. I think somehow or other that music that's created in that moment is a representation of someone else's soul, they're the best of them, and my soul responds. So for me, that part, this locus, uh, of you know what soul and how is it different from spirit or whatever, which is a discussion I'm really very much appreciating. Then I think we started to get almost to levels of well, what is more important or more significant or, and that's where I would go with that is that when art is let's say created, probably other things, but when art is created that is above and beyond most people's skill set, and it takes on 
almost an eternal life if we talk about Bach or Beethoven or um, so that when it's well I was going to say well presented even when it's badly presented sometimes <laughs> it's so elevating that I feel somehow that is about soul theirs and mine and so I, I, I really like that um, especially because when, like you're saying when it's such old pieces of music the idea that you can be in contact with a soul that's 300 years in the past is quite a quite a moving thought. My my question is and this is a gross generalization, but a lot of important artists, a lot of important composers, at least from the sources we have, seem not to have been particularly great people all the time. There's many exceptions, but there's a lot of artists that I ever, you know, from letters from contemporary accounts aren't. But they still write beautiful music that can you know that has stayed for centuries and that can still make people cry now so if if their music embodies a, a soul in some way as you say is it their own soul is it something maybe different like the soul of the time somehow is it like basically just trying to reconcile the idea that you can write such beautiful soulful music without necessarily having the most beautiful soul? It's a wonderful question. Did you want to jump in on that? Um, well, I was just going back to the conversation we had at B21, where we were actually having this in a large group setting, and um, I brought up the notion of like how our souls could be interconnected with some sort of like network. And I think maybe um, like when you have a great work of art, whether it be music or, or even if, you know, I, I would even argue that perhaps like my nephew's piece of work is something that's soul touching to me because of our connection to each other it doesn't necessarily have to be a, ma a maestro or someone who's very good at composing i think if you have that interconnected witness with something and they're putting their entire soul in and the soul of a child being so young he's making artwork for the first time you can kind of see he's inserting a bit of his soul into the work and then it touches my soul and it's form of this interconnection between um, just ways of expression. Well, I, I was inspired by you know what you had to say. There has been a notion at various times that the life of the soul can be uh, connected to other souls, and that in fact that in death, uh, for some Christian believers and perhaps others, one enters a new existence close to God, quote unquote in soul form, and then there's the community of saints, for, is an old notion in theology, which is that communion of souls that people can kind of pray to or whatever. That's <laughs> getting very kind of restricted to a religious thought. I'm more interested in what you're po positing, Viola. How is it that wonderful things can come from bad people? And so I think that's, I think twofold about that. Um, I think one, a lot of what we're finding out, I think, about life or is becoming truer for us or more revealed to us is that almost everything is on a spectrum. And, and so for those people who are not completely wonderful, virtuous saints, perhaps they can create great works of art in spite of not being very good people, and maybe that's where the best of them comes out. So that's one thought. And then the other thought is, well, maybe there is some kind of community of soulfulness that is bigger than us all and we touch into that 
in moments of, we were talking about creation, but there could be many other things. Uh, we, we touch into that. I'll, we were talking earlier about baking. Um, that might even be true for somebody who's, who's working, uh, you know, levain, who's, who's working um, bread dough, a sourdough, and imagining they're, that they're in the ranks of thousands of years of people working that dough. I'm demonstrating the turning of the dough and the slamming of the dough on the table and, and then rounding it so carefully and putting it in. Maybe that's a connection to soulfulness too of generations of folks who have done that and, and are somehow having um, a connection to something larger than I've got to get 400 loaves done for the day, but of really entering into... Um, anyway, I'm kind of meandering, but, but I like this. I'm, again... I'm intrigued by the possibilities that maybe soul is greater than just that place within us and, and creates these possibilities. Mm-hmm. I also think it can exist between cultures because I experienced like the, the touching of a soul. I don't know if we call it touching of a soul, but when I'm doing archaeology and I'm uncovering mm-hmm. artifacts in the ground, I have such respect for them, but it feels like they're almost sacred. And I know that they were everyday items in most cases, but at the same time, it just feels like when I pick up this item, it's a connection to the past. But it also feels like there's still someone's soul left over. So these things need to be revered and respected. And I don't know if that's, I don't know. Like, And it's interesting how we always have to have like the sense of materiality associated with the soul too. I wonder if there's a way where we can kind of um, discuss the soul without having a material object that's representing the soul. I just wanted to say, well, I, I think you've just spoken beautifully to that in saying that in the touching of that object, mm-hmm. the object is putting you in touch with the soul of the mm-hmm. person who created it or used it mm-hmm. thousands of years ago. And so I'm not sure how important the material is in that moment, mm-hmm. that the life of the soul of that person is perfuming the very space that you're in mm-hmm. uh, so strongly that the touching of that object or even uncovering, I'm seeing you with a brush wiping away the sand or yes. something, and <laughs> as it starts to appear and you realize, oh my God, I think that's a whatever. And all of a sudden you're in touch with the person who might have used that. I mean, I think that's... Yeah, you just made me think of something also that's really interesting. Is I'm, I'm, I specialize in ancient musical instruments, and when we play into the musical instruments, it's like producing sound that hasn't been sounded for th- like 3,000 years or so, and then it's something that's just incredible, and it's. I think that would touch my soul. I mean, it has touched my soul, and I don't know if it would touch others, but every time I talk about it, people's faces light up, and you can kind of see that there's a connection there. And also, it's just like the concept in Mesoamerica, it's kind of disputed whether or not this is real, but the idea of animating an instrument, because the instruments are typically ocarinas, and they're made in various shapes and, and forms, and the ones I've dealt with are either animals or human representations. But the act of blowing your own breath is like animating it with a soul, and they call it the breath soul. So, Yeah. yeah. But it's disputed again. Like This is something that's... Uh, not all archaeologists agree with. So. Well, that's going to keep everybody writing books and papers yeah. for a long time, <laughs> and that's a good thing too, especially in our universities. <laughs> but for the rest of us, you see, we started off part of the discussion saying, is the soul that part of a, a, of a being that leaves them at death? You know, and, mm-hmm. and of course there's that death rattle, that last, last breath. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and yeah. I think he's gone. You know, and And then you talk about 
breathing life into these music instruments with breath. And so pneuma, going back to the Greeks, I guess is breath. And um, so, yeah, then there's another locus. You know, where is the soul? I mean, of course, that's, that's us really wanting to be able to name what things do and where they are and all of that kind of thing. But again, that's another notion, the, the breath, the liveliness, um, the personness. You know, yeah, wow. It's a, more ways to think about soul. Another thing is, um, in central Mexico, they have these musical instruments that are made of human remains. So they're made out of human femurs, and they're made to, they have notches that are uh, grooved into them, and then you slide a, either another bone or a piece mm. of wood across it to produce a rasping sound. And um, it's something that's typically, according to some sources, it was used during funerary rites. And it was typically the bones of captive victims, so I don't know if it's a way of like reanimating the human body or kind of like disassociating the human body entirely from the, the soul of, you know, the music. That's like an anti-soul. <laughs> wow. Why do you say anti-soul rather than adding a, like a different soul to the, the funeral uh, rites? Well, it's because the bodies of, uh, in the area that I work, bodies are typically... Um, they're, after the flesh has been removed, bodies are gathered together and they're made into sacred bundles and then they're reburied with um, offerings out of a sign of respect for the individuals. Because these captives haven't been reburied, I wonder if there's like a disconnection from the afterlife in that fact. But again, I'd have to do more research on this. But the skulls, like there's a, an image in one of the codices, I think it's the Codex Mendoza, of one of these rafts um, being placed on top of a skull and the skull is being used as a resonator for the sound. So as if the sound's coming out of the mouth of the individual. So I guess it does kind of act, it could maybe be perceived as a soul, or I would say that maybe the fact that they're disregarding the body and I don't know, I'd have to think about this some more too because I'm kind of going back and forth. I find it fascinating <coughs> and I just wanted to contribute a thought here without any knowledge at all of what you're talking about. Um, you spoke about a general reverence for, for the bones mm -hmm. of certain ones mm -hmm. and of these captives not having that, refer that mm -hmm. reverence for them. And, and so then we somehow give ourselves permission to use the, the, the femurs, did you say? Or, yeah. Um, as a musical instrument, which... Um, uh, seems to be rather disrespectful. Mm -hmm. you know? I'm worried I'm imposing my own views oh. on my interpretation. I think that's why I was stumbling. Because, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, can I don't know that out. But, but I think that would be interesting to, to think about. Mm -hmm. Is that it's okay to use them because they were slaves or captives yeah. or whatever. And so they're of a different order than yeah, all yeah. of us. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is what we've done you know, in terms mm -hmm. of colonialism and whatever. So it becomes kind of interesting. I've forgotten what the name of the contemporary instruments are that are often gourd-like mm -hmm. and ridged and we scrape across them in much the same way. It wouldn't have been very hard to create something like that. And so I'm intrigued by the idea that they had to use bones. And they were meant to sound different, which is really interesting, I find. I don't know if I'm going off track, no. but I just love talking about this. But <laughs> there's some bones that were burned, which produce a different sound. Um, right. And then there's some that have notches in different directions. Yeah. And some actually have drilled holes in between the notches. So every time you move it back and forth, it has a different sound. So I don't know if that's representing the individual or just because they wanted to 
experiment with sound. Fascinating. Yeah. A, a question I have for you is, have you found some of these instruments yourself, like, during your work? Uh, I've worked with them in museum collections. Okay. Yeah. And do you find that when you're, when you're studying these, do you have the same impression that you're touching a soul from the past than you do with other things, that other artifacts that you've found? No, that's why I thought ah. it was, that's why I think that's probably where I was going with the anti-souls because I associate them now with objects instead of actual human beings. And I don't know if I do that intentionally so that I'm not, you know, horrified at the mm. fact that I'm playing a musical, like a, a human being, mm. or if it's something that I've just come to associate with the musical instrument because there is a, a research paper written by Dr. Lisa Overholzer and she talks about how the um, Haltokan community, the community she worked with, the indigenous community, even though we were, ac- she was excavating their um, local descendants, or sorry, their, sorry, she was excavating their ancestors, and these people were local descendants, she um, mentioned that they were not against the displaying of human remains because they no longer associated them as part of their, you know, uh, ancestor group. And um, so she goes into the discussion of that, and I was thinking about in terms of, like, well, would... I be offending local descendants if I was playing human remains of their ancestors, and I've asked a few people down in Tlaxcala where I, or yeah, in Tlaxcala where I work in Tepetipac, and no, they don't see them as human beings anymore. They see them as instruments as well. <laughs> so, and is that because the soul is departed? Maybe, or there's a disasso- disassociation. If it was their family member, a closer individual, then perhaps that would be more, you know, insulting and taboo. And, okay. Yeah. But because these were captives, yeah, they're a different class yeah. of captives and slaves. Yeah. Right? yeah. I was also curious because you mentioned finding some artifacts, and you know, even if it was just like a, a daily item, like a I don't know, a shard of a pot or something like that, that you still felt this kind of connection to a soul from five hundred years ago. So, and maybe this is a stupid question. <laughs> don't tell no. me if it is, but. When you have something like the musical instruments made out of a femur, even if they get turned to the status of object, so were the other things that you are still finding a connection to a soul with. So do you have any idea about why, because like, clearly that means that it's not just the fact of it being an object that takes away from the soulfulness of, a, of an item? So do you have any idea about what the additional layer is that makes you not feel that same soul connection with uh, one of these instruments as opposed to a clay pot or something? I'm amazed at the, um, the production techniques that go into making these instruments, but I don't know. I don't know why there's a distinction between clay pots and, and uh, bones for me. No, I, I don't know, and it's going to haunt my dreams tonight. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this while I go down and do my field work next season. <laughs> I wonder, too, if there isn't some kind of conscious slash unconscious distancing, you know, from the bones to protect yeah. ourselves from, as you were saying, you know, the horrifying idea of this is somebody's leg for god's sake you know mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. and i wonder what they were like is this a male leg a female leg well by the lens yeah, well, well, yeah then you start to personify it like yeah. that and you're like ooh. yeah i mean i do look at it and i see like okay this is probably a younger individual but you can't necessarily determine the sex from just a femur but i mean like i do try to associate with the individual but i never really i'm not i guess i think of it through a scientific lens and i i guess 
it kind of reminds me of this one time I was in the lab and I, uh, I knew there was skeletal remains in a box. And it was the first time I had ever felt such an evil, like, kind of association with human remains before in an archaeological context. And I was afraid to go open those boxes. And so I had to call my, my parents. And I was like, would you mind being on camera with me while I open these boxes? I just have a really bad feeling. And I'm not sure if it's because the boxes were sitting there for such a long time on the shelf and they hadn't been, you know, properly um, um, brought to the, you know, government at that time and stuff. So I, I, I mean, like after you're done an archaeological excavation, you're supposed to analyze the materials and then return them back to the, the you know, government, where they would decide what to do with the remains. And uh, so in this case, the boxes had been there for quite a while, and I felt that they weren't. Um, I'm not going to say they were mishandled. They were in, you know, an archaeological context. They were in boxes. They were safe. They weren't going to be damaged. But I just didn't feel like they were respected. I guess. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably one instance where I've had a uh, feeling inside that something was wrong. But when it comes to musical instruments, I don't feel that. I just, like, scientific view, they're on museum display, that's okay. And then when it comes to artifacts, um, I guess museum collection versus excavation, I feel the same kind of thing. I feel like the artifacts have souls, regardless of where they're positioned and where they are, as long as they're being treated well, I guess. And if they aren't being treated well, does does that change how much of a soul is connected to them? Because, like you mentioned, feeling a sense of evil almost with the with the ones that you felt hadn't been treated well. To me, evil still implies some kind of a soul there. Because if something doesn't have a soul, then it can't be either particularly good or particularly evil or anything like that. It, it you know like a, a table from Ikea or something isn't innately evil or good, it's a table. So does the level of respect or the level of care shown towards an object that has the potential to have a soul change how much of a soul it has or what kind of a soul you like you feel towards it? Um, your question <laughs> just sparked um, a whole rabbit hole. Um, when you're talking about, well, the table doesn't have a soul. Does a psychopath have a soul? Does a sociopath have a soul? You know, we, we talk about, I don't know that much about it, but just from reading crime novels. <laughs> but uh, we talk about, you know, a psychopath or a sociopath having no empathy. And that's why they can victimize people. Mm -hmm. Is that the absence of a soul? I would argue no. Okay, good. I don't have an answer. That was so, a question. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any backing or any support, but I would say I think everything has a soul. Mm -hmm. um, it, and I don't think, like, the actions of the individual can be attributed to the soul. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why, though. They could have done horrible things, but I still think the soul is something that's a little pure in them. Is the soul, then, innately good? And... Mm that doesn't change and if you are a bad person, whatever that means, that's basically everything else about you kind of shadowing the soul? I suppose my notion, to speak against what I was just suggesting there about you know the psychopath not having a soul, uh, my notion I suppose is that um, there's inherent goodness in everyone uh, and that some people make poor choices for lots of reasons, and maybe some people make <laughs> a 
disproportionately large <laughs> number of poor choices. Um, boy, that sounds like a liberal, doesn't it? Eh? <laughs> um, so all of that to say, uh, maybe the soul is repository of good. I don't know. Um, is the soul innately good? I don't know. The soul, it seems to me to go back to kind of the way I started the conversation for me, is the repository of usness, of the we. You know, the, the John is my soul. Everything else is material. And, you know. and so I guess it includes, you know, the psychopathology or, and my best efforts as well, because they're me. If we believe that negative things that we do spring from us intentionally, they don't happen by accident, then, then they have to come from that life force, which I'm choosing to call soul. Yeah, I don't think I can associate good or bad to a soul. Yeah. I think I, I agree with John here. Well, then another question to, to change topics a little bit, but something that I thought was really interesting about the conversation as a whole is that we started by talking about how the soul is something kind of indivi like individual, like uh, Vidya earlier was saying that it's kind of in opposition to all the rankings and all the grades and all the whatever it is that we, we have now. Um, so it's, and we were also mentioning how it's maybe a more private thing than a spirit, if that is the difference. So a very individual, very personal thing. Um, but then the rest of the conversation kind of seemed that any time you have something like Katrina with experiencing some kind of touching of souls through archaeology, or John, you were mentioning with music, how you can sense the soul and how maybe it's tapping into some kind of aura of souls that exist around the world, um, that would imply that things that are soulful, in whatever way you choose to mean that, comes not from an individual, but from the fact of connecting all of the individuals. So basically that, you know, if, if music embodied a soul, theoretically, but it didn't touch anyone else, that that's not necessarily what we would call soulful, because it's this kind of feeling that you get when you hear it, this touching of the souls. I really like your, your phrasing of that. So then, is a soul really something that private, something that personal, or does it come from the kind of communion of a lot of different individuals? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I suspect my answer to that is going to be, if, if, we, if I'm going to be consistent, and it's not because I have a need to be consistent, but I'm just trying to think logically here. If I start off with the idea that the soul is the repository of usness, of the individual we, then while there may be a collective aspect to that, there may be a kind of a Venn diagram where the souls you know, interact or something, or we touch each other's souls or whatever, over time even, right? But there has to be something that's particular of us in our soul mess, whether it's connected to somebody else's or not. I, I don't think we participate wholly in the collective soul, that there's some bit of soul in each one of us that's part of, you know, the spirit world or something like that. And, you know. Well, I was just thinking, like, again, in terms of history, like, if you're thinking about modern-day music, let's say, for example, that's soulful, and it touches people's souls, there's got to be a history of the development of the music that eventually led to that 
um, particular piece of music being soulful. So I think without the communal soul database, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to actually present something that's soulful today. And you could have something soulful, like something that has been touched by a soul that isn't very <coughs> sorry, popular or particularly touching. Like it wouldn't actually touch your soul maybe today, but perhaps in the future or maybe like... I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, let's say go, we go inside a museum, for example, and we're looking at a piece of artwork that was um, drawn maybe hundreds of years ago. You can still have that essence of soul there that can still be impactful today, but maybe in another 500 years or so, 500 years <laughs> or so, it might not necessarily have the same value as we place on it today. It depends on our our social circumstances, I guess. I don't know. Do you agree yeah. or? Yeah, I, I think maybe I, I've, I've figured out something about my question. Um, is there maybe a difference between someone having someone or something having a soul and something being soulful? Uh, whereas, like, the, the distinction I was thinking of maybe, and it, you're, you're right, John, we don't always have to think of distinctions, but it's for the sake of the, the discussion, um, that maybe the soul is an individual thing, that ev everyone and maybe everything has. Um, but for something to be soulful, there needs to be that kind of connection of multiple multiple or many or unimaginably many individuals' souls that are kind of connecting, and that's when something becomes soulful, literally full of souls. I think that's as, as good a definition as any, you know. Um, or m maybe when we call something soulful, maybe we mean that it's invested with so much of the soul of someone or maybe a whole culture. Like we could say, let's say Negro spirituals, let's say, right? Um, that we don't know who to, to attribute them to, and they've grown into a huge life because they've been sung by so many in so many different places. And so that they're invested with the soul of a great or a great many, and that investment, that presence of soul, is the thing that makes us react as strongly to it as we do. Um, now, whether that's a collective soul that it's tapped into, or it's the greatness of uh, an individual soul, like a, you know, a jazz Bach, you know, all for the glory of God, you know, at the written at the bottom of every score, uh, I don't know. I, but I know it when I experience it. <laughs> you know, I, when I see that work of art that leaps off the. Not sure that that answered your question either, but it's fun thoughts, eh? Like, yeah. yeah, it just reminds me of this. I had an anthropology theory class, and we were talking about tables, and they said like there was this point in history where there was these crafters of tables, and they invested so much time and so much effort into putting something sim special into something so simple. But then you get stuff like from IKEA, where people are <laughs> they're investing a lot of time and a lot of their inspiration into these objects that can be easily created by by everyone, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that had a soul. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if it's just, like, I guess, like, the amount of time invested, but the also, like, the amount of, I don't know, how would you say how much soul goes into an object? How much care, maybe? Yeah. 
because like you if you if you take that argument then the people who are at ikea there's a lot of care that goes into making the design for a table and then you have a team that cares about like producing the table with the fewest construction materials which is a lot of care and perhaps they put a lot of soul into that but it doesn't necessarily reflect in the final object i find because these these items are easily discarded and they're mass produced so is soul the same as effort Clearly, there was a lot of effort in all of that design of that mass-produced table that packs flat <laughs> and can be put together with a lot of difficulty over a whole evening because the instructor... No, anyway, I'll stop <laughs> that. Uh, um, but effort uh, and even competence, I'm not sure that that's the same as soul. I think what I meant with care was almost a form of love for mm. what you're doing. Okay, yeah. Um, so not care so much as effort, because I agree there can be a great amount of effort doing something that you can't stand or that you find horribly tedious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, almost, take it, almost taking care of, of something, like the, 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 the table artis- artisans or, or whatever they were called that you mentioned, I imagine that a lot of attention, a lot of love goes into making something, um, like, you know, just sure that the designs are right that just the, it works that all, all of this attention and really I, th- I think it's a form of love that goes into something maybe that's what's missing from amen I, you, you were speaking and I was thinking I think she means love and then there you said it twice <laughs> yes 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 I agree I think that's investing something with love even if it's not going to be, you know, the, those artisans that worked on cathedrals, mm-hmm. you know, and here they were carving something that no one could see because it was so far away, you know, but that was, con- and they, they were manual laborers who had the heart of artists. And yes, it was totally invested with love. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, maybe that's one of the elements of soulfulness, of the, the application of soul to some activity that makes it then extraordinary or worthy or, you know. But love, you, you said it there, that's good. This has been fun. I'm glad. Yes, thank well, you. Thank yeah, well, thank you, you very both much. for joining me. You're most thank welcome. You. Thanks for the invitation. We may not have gotten to a very clear answer on what the soul is, but it seems to include certain elements, like love, like connections. And as we've seen it, the idea of a soul spans from thousands of years ago, as can be discovered through archaeological methods in a pot that has been preserved for millennia, to music that was written a hundred years ago, to things that are made now, It's really a question, I think, that has been with us as humans since the start of our existence. Thank you again to John McMaster and Katrina and Vidya. Um, Vidya, who uh, you heard at the beginning of the podcast, but unfortunately had to leave early. Uh, Thank you again to our listeners as well. I hope you enjoyed it, and please stay tuned for the next episodes of the Building 21 podcast. Thank you.